Dress? The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your host, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dressed listeners, in September 2022, when the exhibit in America, a lexicon of fashion, closes at the Met, it will have been a full year of celebrating the sheer talent, breadth, and history of American fashion design. Some designers on display are more familiar names in the history of American fashion. So names like Oscar de la Renta, Ralph Lauren, Carolina Herrera, Halston, all of which, of course, have become household names over the years. But others of these designers on display still remain more obscure, and that includes designers like Giorgio de San Angelo, Elizabeth Hawes, and Valentina. And the latter two have each received their own dressed episode, one of which we are re-airing for you today. How could anyone forget a woman with a name like Valentina? Right. (laughs) And yet the life and legacy of the subject of today's Dressed Classic episode remains largely overlooked. Hence why we are bringing you this episode from the archives. Please meet Russian fashion designer Valentina Schley, the intoxicatingly beautiful lover of Greta Garbo. And incidentally, Valentina, fascinating. She also lied about nearly everything. (laughs) We hope you enjoy. So, Cass, the subject of our show today has been described by people who knew her as the following. Hypnotically elegant, dexterously elusive, narcissistic, utterly terrifying, and deliciously wicked. <laughs> I know. Oh, we're, go- we're going there today. Oh, yeah. So the woman who earned herself the moniker as the sartorial sorceress of East 67th Street was a renowned beauty, and also a pathological liar. She also just happens to be the most successful independent American female designer of the 20th century. But she was not American. That's right. Today we examine the life and career of one of the most outlandish characters American fashion has ever seen. Her story and her persona were larger than life, And whether people who knew her liked her or not, it seems the one thing that they did agree on is that she was a captivating rara avis, or rare bird. She is undoubtedly one of American fashion's greats, but I'm guessing most of our listeners have never heard about the tempestuous genius, Valentina Schley, known professionally as Valentina. I am also betting on this, which means that the story of Valentina Nikolaevna Senina's birth in the Kiev region of the Ukraine is probably the first thing that we should talk about, and it will be only the first thing about her that we should consider suspect. Because as Cole Yohannan unabashedly writes in the opening line of his biography on her, quote, Valentina lied about nearly everything. (laughs) I just want to give Cole a shout out there, mad writer respect. I mean, that's how you seduce someone into reading the rest of your book. Absolutely. 
And let's just say that the truth never got in the way of Valentina weaving a tale. And I feel like, April, this is not actually an uncommon theme undressed this season. Mm -hmm. Because like her contemporaries, Chanel and Scaparelli, Valentina was a bit of a chameleon who could morph to make the situation advantageous for herself. So if we believe her story, she was born in 1904, but her earliest Russian passport says 1899. And this is muddled even further by the fact that a later British visa bears the date 1889, although that year was scratched out in ink and replaced with 1899. So official documents being handwritten at that time, it can't really be known who may have undertaken this correction. Hey, I mean, we know she was willing to lie about her age by five years, so why not go all in and make it 15? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Part of the reason we know little about her early years was because she was moving around a lot as the result of the brewing Bolshevik revolution um, in neighboring Russia. Her family fled Kiev due to political unrest and settled in the South. And this is where it seems she began working as a stage actress in Kharkov sometime around 1917 or 1918. Unrest followed once again. And then she fled to the Crimean Peninsula. Her mother and brother were killed in the Troubles. Or were they, April? Because Mm -hmm. there is correspondence between her and her husband from later in her life that actually disputes this fact. So regardless, we should know about Valentina is that she never looked back. If she had any living relatives back in Russia from this point forward, she would claim to be descended from the Russian aristocracies and that her family was slaughtered in the revolution and that she barely escaped with her own life. Oh, and the family jewels. Which is where her soon-to-be husband, George Schley, supposedly met her, a beautiful 14-year-old orphan standing on a freezing cold train platform in Sevastopol. The story is that he plucked her from the street sent her to his house to be tended to by his servants. Schley became enthralled with the exquisitely beautiful young actress, who, according to his servants, quote, complained about everything. (laughs) (laughs) She would even berate his staff um, about things like the type of soap and the bath that they had drawn for her. And Schley himself, about her temperamental nature, says, quote, even when she had nothing, she was a perfectionist. No wonder she became a fantastic designer. Wait, so she had nothing? What about all those family jewels that she said she left with? And the age of 14, I mean, these dates are just not matching up right now, are they? Exactly. (laughs) Basically, the more they told this story over the years, the more elaborate and over-the-top it got. And Valentina herself actually frequently contradicted herself with alternate stories of her youth. One of the big ones is that she was an orphaned aristocrat who grew up in a convent raised by nuns. Uh, My favorite story is when she told her friends that this painting of the actress Eleanor Deuce was of her mother. Deuce was one of the most celebrated actresses in the world at the tail end of the 19th century. So, of course, everyone knew that Valentina was not exactly telling the truth, but this did not seem to matter to her. Yeah. We may never know the real story about her early years, but what is most likely is that her mother was not a lady-in-waiting to the Russian royal family, that the family jewels never existed at all, and that ashamed of her working-class origins, she used the occasion of the revolution to reinvent her past. 
So Valentina is now under the protection of George, who actually, he was a really intriguing character in his own right. He, he was. was a bit of a prodigy. He earned his law degree while still a teenager, and he was a full general in the Russian White Army by the age of 21. And at the time of meeting Valentina, Schley was also involved in politics. He owned several successful businesses, despite the fact that he was not even 30. He was charismatic, he was ambitious, and an extremely well-connected young man. All of this served them well when the Civil War forced them out of the region. George arranged an escape for his family, including Valentina, on a British destroyer ship headed for Constantinople. They left their lives behind in the dead of night with only what they could carry. And the next few years would be somewhat nomadic for the Schleys. Valentina was now traveling as his wife. However, it is suspected that the two may have never actually officially married. And we don't know because war and the crossing of many international borders have really left this paper trail cold. Greece, Italy, and Switzerland would be home to the Schleys until they finally settled in Paris in 1921. And the well-connected George already had many former business contacts there, both Russian and French, and he set up shop for Russian immigrants as a legal advisor and business manager. But one client in particular would hold the Schley's destiny in his hands, and that would be the artist Leon Basque. That Basque was the costume and set designer to the immensely popular Ballet Russe placed him firmly in the inner circle of the Parisian avant-garde. And it was almost certainly Basque connections that led to Valentina's entree to the Parisian stage as both a dancer and an actor. Reportedly very hardworking and remarkably talented, the director of one of the theatrical reviews that she appeared in doubled her salary within the first two weeks because he was so impressed by her, quote, stupendous performances. That she apparently was a very gifted performer will factor into the career that she later created for herself as a fashion designer. Now, one would think that Paris, being the fashion capital of the world, that this is the point of the story where Valentina would launch herself into the world of high style. But this isn't the case. Reportedly, it was Leon Basque who much admired the remarkable and unique style of clothes that Valentina designed for herself. And it is said that Basque was the one who first planted the seed that Valentina should consider a career in fashion. But the stage would remain her profession for the foreseeable future, especially now that George had taken up theater management as one of his business ventures. I mean, Cass, this guy kind of had his fingers in all the pots. <laughs> <laughs> all the pots. And one of these pots specifically was George's management of Mary Kuzinezov's Review Ruse that would lead them to the shores of America in 1922. Much fanfare preceded the troops' arrival in New York as the production had been a smash hit in Paris. And we should probably interject here for a second that this was not the fabled ballet ruse of Sergei Diaghilev. The Schleys were with another Russian performance troupe entirely. And this is important because, once again, according to many people, Valentina later claimed to have danced with the ballet ruse. We don't really have anything to support this claim, but it must be said that she absolutely did have professional ties to both Basque as well as Michel Fouquin, who was the choreographer for the Ballet Russe. So, I'm sorry, Cass, I think I interrupted you. What were you about to say? Uh, I was going to say that much like uh, how the avant-garde of Paris had welcomed the Schleys with open arms, so also did New York, because they immediately fell in with a smart set that included stars of the stage and socially prominent members of New York society, 
And none of this actually was lost on Valentina's ego. (laughs) Which was formidable. (laughs) But she was probably taken down a notch or two, um, went partway through their run of the Review Roosters production at the Booth Theater in York City, the Schubert brothers announced that they were not going to be able to meet the financial commitments to complete the run. So suddenly, the entire troupe was out of a job. Bit acting gigs here and there led Valentina to a friendship with one of America's first superstar models, Dinarzad. And Dinarzad had risen to fame as one of the couturier Lucille, or Lady Duff Gordon's mannequins. Dinarzad introduced her around, and despite the fact that Valentina soon became a favorite model of the era's top photographers, this phase of her modeling career would not last long. She became enraged after an incident of inappropriate sexual touching by an employer, and she quit. And this is the part where we harp on the fact that this unfortunate aspect of the modeling industry is still a problem nearly a hundred years later. (laughs) But at least this is a conversation that is now happening now, very publicly within the industry, and various steps are actually being taken to provide protection for models. And actually, one awesome organization working on this is the Model Alliance. So I highly encourage our listeners to check out their website if you would like to learn more about these efforts. Yes, they are doing excellent work. And I would bet, um, if we know anything about Valentina, that she probably gave her abuser a lashing that he never forgot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and she, it was not above her to, like, go out of her way to seek revenge. <laughs> so I'm sure she probably got it in the end. But not that that in any way, shape, or form makes up for his unwarranted advances. It doesn't. She was justifiably angry. Um, And at this time, her modeling career cooled a little bit, but it was not entirely over. Yeah, so sometime around 1923 or 1924, Valentina and George finally took Leon Basque's advice and launched Valentina into the world of women's fashion with a boutique on Madison Avenue. And this was reportedly bankrolled by a wealthy American socialite who encountered Valentina one night at a Russian nightclub. She was so impressed with Valentina's elegance and unusual sense of style that she offered to act as a financial backer on the spot. This venture was so short-lived, however, that we are not really going to delve into it. Reportedly, it ended badly after the investor ran off with all of the money less than a year into the business. The Schleiss Fashion House was quickly reorganized with a fellow Russian, Sonia Levien, as Valentina's business and creative partner. This is important in light of the fact that Valentina cannot be thought of technically as a dressmaker. Tastemaker, stylist, creative director might kind of be more apt monikers for her. And while she did have some skill in sketching and draping, throughout her career, Valentina depended on the skills of others to physically execute her vision. And Sonia played a role in this aspect of the business because she had more detailed knowledge of garment construction. The duo reopened the doors of Valentina's previous custom salons at 37th Street and Madison and opened an additional location at 55th Street and Madison, which offered ready-to-wear styles with a bohemian flair. So garments inspired by their native Russia, as well as authentic Russian handcrafts. So the style cultivated by the two was quite unlike anything anyone had ever seen. And we'll hear more about this after a word from our sponsors. As Sonia and Valentina, the business was reborn in 1925. 
I think we can all conjure an image in our mind of the typical Roaring Twenties style for ladies. Tubular shift dresses with loosely defined dropped waist at the high hip. If the dress even had a waist at all, really. You know, the more glitz, the glamour, the better. Lots of embellishment in the way of beads, sequins, embroidery, fur, and feathers galore. However, this sort of design held little fascination for Valentina, whose style was described in Women's Wear Daily as, quote, ultra-modern yet classic, sophisticated without frou-frou, dramatic and picturesque yet essentially simple, no obvious tricks with one exception, the trick of the cut, no reminiscence of costume or period types except insofar as a fluid line like the Greek or medieval inspires this modern designer. In fact, as many modish women were bearing more skin than they ever had before, Valentina's look was quite covered up from head to toe. She was not afraid to buck not only trends, but she really bucked the fashionable silhouette entirely. And about her own wardrobe of this time, Valentina said, I wore a belt where a belt should be worn around my waist, not my thighs. Skirt lengths were along classical lines. My friends were astonished, but they never said it was wrong. It was classical, and it was followed. Yeah, photos of her from this period show her wearing hemlines a good 10 inches longer than most women, which was, you know, quite obvious. And her waistline was always at the natural waist. She was really this astonishing beauty who an admirer of hers described as, quote, having enormous serene blue eyes with long lashes, long fingers of rare beauty. Um, And rather than cutting her hair casts in the bob, as was quite trendy, as we all know in the 1920s, Valentina actually let her hair grow, which she described the color of her hair as being green gold. She let her hair grow down to her ankles, although it was typically worn up in really, really elegant braids or in buns. So it really sounds like actually that she's setting the foundation for 1930s fashion because we know the silhouette would come to dominate that era. Yep. And... She really cut a striking figure when done up in her signature style, which frequently drew inspiration from medieval styles of dresses, as well as that of cloistered nuns. In her own words, quote, my earliest recollection is of two nuns in a convent in Russia, flowing gray woolen robes, wide girdles, dull white cloth, tightly bound around heads and throats, making perfect ovals of calm faces. I thought they the most beautiful women I had ever seen. The memory has remained to color everything I have ever done. That's such a lovely quote. It is. She was actually quite a good writer also. Yeah, she's very eloquent. Mm -hmm. So this aesthetic of monastic dress would remain strong throughout her career. And in fact, there is a dress of hers, a black dress with a belt and hood, that's currently on display at the Cloisters in New York City as part of the Met's Heavenly Body Exhibition. So it's a must-see if you can make it. It's ending very soon. Yes, very soon. And maybe before even this episode comes out, Possibly. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but there is a wonderful book that accompanies the exhibition. Yeah, absolutely. Two-part catalog. Oh, speaking of, of her ensembles, I, I would like to talk about one particular picture of her from 1926 um, because it's a really good summation of her penchant for these religious references. Valentina is standing on a stone staircase with her business partner, Sonia, and uh, Valentina is wearing a light-colored, long sleeve button-down shirt that has a wide collar. And this she paired with a simple columnar matching skirt belted at the natural waist that terminates about five inches above her ankle. So it's rather long for 1926. 
And with this, she's wearing espadrilles. Her head is covered with a scarf in a manner similar to a nun's coif or veil. And the whole look is accessorized with small, round sunglasses. Think John Lennon here. Um, (laughs) And then she also has a rosary draped around her wrist and a cigarette holder in one hand. Please tell me we have this photo. I, 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 we'll see if we, I mean, I have it, but we'll see if we can obtain it for Instagram purposes. <laughs> Combined with a sort of bohemian Russian flair, Valentina's style was dramatic in its understated simplicity. Except when it came to her headwear, I think we can both agree, April, that things got a little kooky when it came to this. Things got a lot kooky. <laughs> Fabulously kooky. She frequently wore nun-inspired head wraps, like you mentioned, but also turbans and these tall conical constructions that bordered on farce. But somehow on her, it just all works. She's one of those fortunate individuals who can pull these things off. Yeah, oddly, it really did work. And, and, And to promote their very distinctive offerings, Sonia and Valentina took an equally novel approach. They hit the road. From the earliest days of her foray into fashion, Valentina was quite clear about who she wanted her customer base to be, and that would be very wealthy women. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) very wealthy. (laughs) So where does one find wealthy women if you're a young upstart fashion brand in 1926, you might ask? Well, resort hotspots would be one place. So her and Sonia packed up their wares and set their sights on the likes of Newport, Nantucket, and a whole host of other high-end destinations up and down the East Coast. And what they would do is they would put on trunk shows at high-end hotels with Valentina acting as the model. Um, Would-be clients could then place orders on the spot and then later visit the shop for fittings um, as overwhelmingly these garments were really custom and made to measure. Society women and sophisticates of the stage and screen were quickly seduced by the duo's bohemian luxe, quote-unquote. But this did not mean all was smooth sailing because both women reputedly had fiery temperaments, as we have seen a little bit with Valentina. And although it is not known the exact reasons, the partnership ended only after two years. But no worries, Valentina would land yet another wealthy backer pretty much immediately. Yeah. So legend has it that lured in by a dress in the window, a woman named Maud Seligman found Valentina inside the store weeping. It seems, Cass, that Sonia had, quote-unquote, fired her. And not exactly sure what that means. Like, what was their actual working arrangement? Right. (laughs) Um, But when Maude learned that it was Valentina that had designed the dress in the window, she suggested that the Schleys meet with her and her husband, who was a Wall Street lawyer, about backing a new business venture. And that's exactly what happened. Yep. In January 1928, Valentina Gowns Incorporated opened at 61st and Madison in New York City with the Schleys and the Seligmans as equal partners. And it seems that the old maxim of third times a charm holds true here because this time things exploded right out of the gate. Within the first two hours of her new business, Valentina purportedly took $20,000 in orders. That's in today's money. And by the end of the year, $1.3 million. So 1929 could have spelled disaster for the burgeoning business, but it did not. In fact, despite the stock market crash, sales rose 27% in 1929. Yeah, so obviously Valentina had found that clientele of 
very wealthy women that she sought. And this is all the more incredible when you consider the fact that throughout her entire career, not one cent was ever spent on advertising. Her business just really blossomed on word of mouth only. And of course, Valentina's knack for theatrics, which received considerable press coverage. Because she was exceptionally aware that she herself was this living, breathing, walking advertisement for her brand. And when editorial spreads of her clothes first appeared in Fashion Magazine, she insisted on modeling them herself. Any and every public appearance was an opportunity to cement the Valentina myth in the mind of the public. So being an actress, of course, she loved attending the theater, and her entrances as an audience member are legendary and incredibly fabulous. Yeah, I mean, before this episode, I thought I knew quite a lot about Valentina. Me too. I had a really, really good time digging into some additional, like, primary source press coverage about her from the era. Um, I found this one amazing article that said, no matter what she might be wearing to the theater, you could always count on the fact that she would have four-inch long fingernails, (laughs) a foot-long cigarette holder, and that, quote, In public, she frequently takes out a small platinum comb and gives her eyebrows a once-over. They are prominent, and she is proud of them. People sometimes think they're false, and Valentina feels that combing them is the best way of proving that she grew them herself. (laughs) She is also fond of combing her hair at odd moments, claiming that the exercise helps her think. Oh, my God. I know. Thank you for that gem. May 1941, Cosmopolitan Magazine. I want to know if she's doing this eyebrow combing with these four-inch long fingernails. That's a sight I know, to see. all of it. <laughs> I mean, just the whole thing. Yeah, supposedly she would intentionally create these moments where all eyes were upon her by entering the theater at the absolute last minute when just about everyone had taken their seats. One society columnist recalled encountering Valentina coming down the aisle wearing a draped Grecian matte jersey silk dress with a very tall conical headdress. But inside the cone, she had placed dry ice, Mm -hmm. which was wafting behind her as she descended. So when the colonists greeted her, supposedly she said, look, darling, I'm slaying them, then winked and went and sat down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is extra. Uh, And and poor whoever was sitting behind her with that dry ice wafting in their face all night. (laughs) Did she take it out? I don't know. Um, But yeah, her and George were quite the couple about town. Um, You know, they palled around in the company of the basically the who's who of artistic circles like Noel Coward and Gloria Swanson, Cary Grant, Cole Porter, but most importantly, Greta Garbo, whose life would be entwined with the Chalets for the next few decades. And we'll hear more about that after a word from our sponsors. Cass, I'm really excited about this next part because we get to dish some dirt. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we do. Because just when you think there cannot be possibly any more dramatics at the hands of Valentina, well, she always delivers. In this case, a scandal that lasts for decades. Yeah. And one that all began when fashion publicist Eleanor Lambert introduced Greta Garbo to the Schleys as a client in 1939. Despite being one of the most famous women in the world, clothes were just not Garbo's thing. 
Um, and friends said that when she wasn't styled by the studio, she dressed really, really poorly, quite shabbily, because she just didn't care. Which is so interesting because she's one of the most glamorous film stars of that period. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason why Lambert took her to uh, see Valentina is because she kind of wanted to combat any tarnish that her her slovenly appearance might do to her star status. Um, so she took her to Valentina's custom salon for a new wardrobe. And the rest is really history because George, Garbo, and Valentina were then inseparable for many, many years to come. Which is a little surreal when you realize, after looking at photographs, that Valentina and Garbo looked remarkably similar. Yeah. So much so that Valentina was frequently mistaken for Garbo on the street and asked for her autograph because of this. Uh, this fact was widely remarked upon in the press in the slew of articles that soon began to circulate, ruminating not on their similar appearance, but on the nature of the relationship between the three adults. Yes. So, well, never categorically confirmed, it's really widely understood that the relationship was one of a sexual nature, um, and perhaps that it ignited first between the two women. When friends and family had been questioned over the years about the intimate nature of this relationship, the response has kind of been, um, you know, we won't confirm, but we won't deny. Um, and, 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 and my interpretation of this is because of a gesture of respect for their privacy because they were all very high-profile individuals. But that doesn't mean that the threesome did not have a bit of fun taunting the press's speculations. Valentina would make her and Garbo matching outfits, and they would go out to the most exclusive restaurants and events. Valentina on George's one arm, Garbo on the other— Another time, Valentina was shot in one of her own designs for Harper's Bazaar, the hem of her petticoat embroidered in French with an allusion to their threesomeness. I mean, no one, the press, fellow socialites, no one could get enough of this. Um, in the words of a fellow New Yorker um, who ran about in their circle, he said, quote, you cannot imagine the stir that they caused. The most glamorous movie star in the world and the most glamorous designer, absolutely defying everyone to so much as think of raining on their parade. An unimaginable vignette that made you wonder if you weren't watching a movie. People were simply dumbfounded, and the effect cannot be put into words. So the trio was constantly together. They did quite a bit of traveling all over the world together. Um, and Garbo even bought an apartment in the same building where Valentina and George already lived, although on a separate floor. And amidst all of this, and now we are speaking of the 1940s here, Valentina's business continued to boom. George had artfully handled business affairs, so they were able to buy the Seligman's interest in the business. And in 1940, when fashion designer and rebel Elizabeth Hawes, who was a recent subject, undressed herself, so check out that episode if you haven't. Lizzie! Um, when Elizabeth Hawes closed the doors to her custom salon for a sojourn into war work and labor organizing, well, Valentina jumped on the chance to take over the premises, formerly occupied by Hawes, and she relocated to East 67th Street. All of this expansion was possible thanks to the staggering sums of money her clothes could command. The low end for a day dress by Valentina started at $275 during that time, which would be just under $5,000 today, whereas an evening gown could top out at $1,200 or well over $20,000 adjusted for inflation. 
And this made Valentina one of the most expensive designers working in America at this time in the company of greats, Charles James and Man Boucher. And it's actually been written that while her two male competitors remain better known, Valentina was actually financially more successful than the two of them combined. And the price her clothing commanded was something that she did not apologize for. Fashion editor Bettina Ballard recounted a tale of Valentina indignantly responding to a client's inquiry about price, saying, you ask price for dress that changed your whole life? Question mark, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, she, she was renowned for coming up for, for, with some real doozies. There, there's this one when a famous Russian ballerina declined a $40,000 sable coat that wow. Valentina was attempting to sell her. Um, and, and, and the reason she declined it was because she had just bought a mink coat. Uh, apparently, Valentina's response was, mink? Mink? Don't be ridiculous. Mink is for football. <laughs> and, and similarly, later, she would declare that ermine is for bathrobes. Seems like Valentina was a bit of a hard sell. <laughs> I guess she didn't really like to take no for an answer. No. She definitely was. Actress Eleanor Ahern once remarked, quote, Valentina wasn't always easy to take, but she was definitely always worth it. Easy to take, like ripping sleeves off clients during fittings or telling one client whose plumpness displeased her, quote, you are very pretty, madame, but you must do something about your figure. Valentina is a dressmaker, not upholsterer. You mean like that, April? Very easy to take. (laughs) Yeah, not easy to take. (laughs) Uh, Well, that one client, though, I suppose should consider herself quite lucky um, because Valentina was actually very well known for flat out turning down clients who were heavier than she felt that they needed to be. And how she did this was she just simply told them that she didn't think that her clothes would please them. Oh, man. (laughs) One category of work she did not turn down, however, was designing for the stage and screen. Even people familiar with Valentina's name and reputation today may not realize that over the course of her career, she costumed nearly 100 stage and film productions. Many of the actresses she dressed for their performances went on to become dedicated Valentina clients off the stage as well. And actually, rather serendipitously, April, our mutual friend Anna was just telling me about this Valentina design costume that she dressed onto a mannequin, um, and it's currently on display at the Met Opera. It's this amazing black and red bolero number designed for Poncel in the 1956 production of Carmen. And with particular Valentina flair, it has this fabulous side-angled matador hat. Uh, That sounds smashing. Hey, Anna. I think we should give our shout-out to our ladies over the Costume Institute. Yeah, hi. (laughs) (laughs) So Valentina began working as a costume designer in the early 1930s, and eventually she actually became a union member of the United Scenic Artists Local 289. So some of the notable productions that she did during this time include the stage production of The Philadelphia Story, starring Katherine Hepburn, her uncredited designs for the 1944 film Lady in the Dark, starring Ginger Rogers, And rather comically, a musical production of Idiot's Delight, which starred Lynn Fontaine, doing a character based on Valentina herself. This was all with Valentina's blessing. Um, She even coached Fontaine, so it seems that she did cast, have a little bit of a sense of humor about people's impressions of her. That's good to know, because, yeah. um, yeah. (laughs) I do wonder, though, does she ever design any of Greta's costumes for film? 
I don't know if she ever did them for film, but she dressed her for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this uh, that you just talked about goes to prove how well-known she was at the time. Parody doesn't really work if the audience does not get the reference or the joke. So people knew who these people were making fun of. Yeah. So she was not only well-known, but she was also really well-respected within the fashion industry. Um, In 1943, she received an American Fashion Critics Award, which if you, some of our listeners are not familiar with that, it's kind of like getting the Oscar if you're a fashion designer. Um, So if Valentina's reputation as a tastemaker was not cemented before, it certainly was now. Um, And advertisers came calling with endorsement offers. So, well, Valentina's gowns held fast to their policy of not advertising their couture creations, this does not mean that Valentina and her designs did not appear in the advertising of others. Just to name a few, we see Valentina and her clothes in ads for Selenese Rayon, Forceman's Wool, Avon Cosmetics, Kaiser Motors, Gotham Hosiery, and Double Mint Gum. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Can I Google this and find photos of Double Mint Gum, (laughs) Valentina, please? (laughs) Well, and also, Cass, it's especially interesting because um, in conjunction with this Double Mint Gum um, promotion, she actually produced a paper pattern of one of her designs um, that that went hand in hand. Huh. I could see why you would say this is interesting because Valentina has been written about in the past as never having dabbled in any sort of affordable, ready-to-wear for mass audiences. And she's sometimes spoken of as an ultra-exclusive designer who never deigned herself to cater to the masses. And that is simply not the case. No. Um, I mean, Off the Rack was never the mainstay of her business by any means. Um, Really, one-of-a-kind custom garments were overwhelmingly the majority of her creations. But she did indeed explore the realm of producing high-end ready-to-wear, which was produced in her own atelier, sent out to select boutiques where any alterations would be marked, and then the garments would be sent back to Valentina's workshops to be altered. So, If this seems like a lot of back and forth, you would be correct. (laughs) This was certainly not how things typically operated. Um, But Valentina maintained such a level of control over the ready-to-wear that bore her name that it really became unsustainable. And when it wasn't working, she then limited the purveyors of her ready-to-wear to to one high-end retailer, iMagnon. And this business relationship actually continued for some time, more than 10 years, Mm -hmm. um, until 1951. And by then, she'd been in business for more than 25 years. But this was also a time when things in Valentina's life began to shift. So in 1956, the decision was made to close the custom salon. Despite the monetary and critical success of the House of Valentina, she saw the handwriting on the wall. Her moment was over. More and more women did not want the ultra-expensive, supremely luxurious type of garments Valentina was famous for. Ready-to-wear was really on the rise. And ultimately, she was right. There was a massive paradigm shift in the 1960s. She did continue to work, however, producing designs for the stage and screen. Another shift was in her relationship with George and Garbo. Beginning in the late 1940s, George and Garbo increasingly began to pair off exclusively. Well, Valentina busied herself with her on-again, off-again paramour of, for more than two decades, whose name was Jack Barrett. But the moment when the relationship between Garbo and Valentina soured 
isn't exactly clear. After years of sharing George's attention, things started to go south. And what one can presume was love turned to hate, uh, despite the fact that they remained immersed in each other's lives at intimate social gatherings and vacations for years to come. But things turned downright bitter between the two in 1964 upon George's death. He was then in his 70s and early in the year had been hospitalized twice. Valentina's biographer, Cole Johannan, states that one hospitalization had been for pneumonia, while the other was for severe depression. So it seems like George was not in the best of health at this moment. No. And it was while in Paris with Garbo in October of 1964 that George suffered a massive heart attack and died under a very convoluted set of circumstances. The press offered various accounts that he had died at his hotel. Another one said that he died on a park bench, and yet another outside a restaurant while smoking a cigarette. All not the greatest. (laughs) Yeah, no. Um, The one that's most likely, though, Cass, is that he died at a nightclub alone. (sighs) Wow. Why there are so many different accounts is not exactly clear, but it was probably because Garbo panicked upon the news of his death in public under these somewhat undignified circumstances. And not knowing what to do, she turned to a friend, Cecile de Rothschild, to pull some strings in the press to alter the narrative. And once notified of her husband's death, Valentina was desperately trying to get a hold of Garbo, who was just not responding. In the end, it was Valentina who flew to France to bring back her husband's body, never speaking to Garbo at all. Whether it was accurate or not, for the rest of her life, Valentina was convinced that Garbo, who, of course, as we know, was a notorious recluse, she was convinced that Garbo had left George for dead in public because she didn't want the press attention. That's awful. I know. So Valentina returned to New York, both in grief and in rage, and Cass, she actually took a razor to her scrapbooks. Um, and, and some of her papers, we, we see all these, like, press clippings and photos where Garbo's face has actually just been cut out. So she was very upset. Yes. Um, and their feud was so hostile that the elevator operators at the building, because they both lived in the same building, Well, these elevator operators were trained to avoid picking up the two women in the same elevator car, which is likely true, although there are later reports from family members that the two were still seen in each other's company from time to time. The real tearjerker, though, comes when Garbo was told of Valentina's death, which happened in 1989, and apparently the grief was unbearable. Garbo buried her face in her hands and slid down a wall sobbing. Six months later, Garbo herself would also pass. And with that rather sad and heavy ending, we will bid you adieu this week. Perhaps you'll consider adding a little bit of drama to your ensemble next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.